everyone and welcome to another Scots Way podcast and through in Edinburgh to speak to Doug Johnson. Hello Doug. Hi there, how you doing? And um, I think it's the only time I actually get to have a proper chat with you is by recording <laughs> it, I've realised. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're here to talk mainly about your new novel, uh, The Jump, which is out now and it's quite right that we're having this chat I think in your house because it's kind of based in the family, isn't it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess I'm a. You would call me a domestic noir writer. I was wondering how you'd feel about that um, term because it's one I've just discovered recently. All right. Well, it's interesting. I think I think Julia Crouch came up with it. <clears throat> I'm not sure, but I mean it's interesting because I, uh, me and Helen Fitzgerald, yeah. uh, one of my friends, is a, a very similar kind of writer with similar tastes and uh, similar topics. But we were having a laugh about it because domestic noir sort of came to the fore, like it became a phrase about a year or two ago, right. maybe around about Gone Girl or the Girl on the Train, okay. that sort of thing. Yep. And uh, and there was a whole rash of like articles about domestic noir, and me and Helen were like, "Hang on, we've been writing this since <laughs> two thousand and six, haven't we?" But uh, there wasn't a name for it. So uh, yeah, I mean, it is it's um, uh, so the latest one. I mean, some of them are more domestic inverted commas than others, but they're always um, they're usually based around family, um, and they're usually about people getting sucked into extraordinary situations. Mm-hmm. And they're not, I mean, they're not, you can define them by what they're not very often. They're not police procedurals, they're not detective novels. Yeah. They're not kind of high-octane thrillers like Spy or Espionage or anything like yeah, that. You yeah, know? yeah, So it's kind of about ordinary people. And this, the latest one, The Jump, which is my seventh book, is probably the most along those lines because it is, it's about the sort of the central um, unit. It's like the family unit. Yeah. Uh, very much it's about a woman who's suffering from grief because her teenage son has guess, killed himself six months before the book starts and yeah. that's the opening of the book really. I mean looking back over the seven novels it seems to me you could almost say there's a couple of strands uh, of your writing you've got things like Smokeheads and Deadbeat and uh, um, Hit and Run which are um, kind of Real, it's all gritty in some ways but you know they're, they're usually more adult themed if you like and to, that's the wrong thing but there's sex and drugs and rock and roll and, you know, whiskey and, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Gone Again, uh, which I think was 2013 novel, yeah. and The Jump are very much based in domesticity in the family unit as being, <coughs> uh, well, basically there's children involved in it. Yeah. Is that something that you acknowledge or do you not see that, that split well, at all? Well, it's interesting. I never really thought, I never really think about it when I'm thinking about what to write, but it is clearly that, I mean, I think, the, I think Gone Again and The Jump do stand a little bit separate from the rest of the stuff yeah. to an extent. And that was never deliberate. It's just um, the way it kind of panned out. And as it happens, I think those are probably my two favourite books. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of swap, you mentioned the sort of like sex and drugs and rock and roll stuff, which is great. I love writing that stuff. But the what Gone Again and The Jump do instead is they kind of swap that sort of fast-paced mayhem for a kind of emotional resonance. Yeah. Hopefully that's the yeah. idea when you're writing it. And I, I think that stems a little bit out of the subject matter. You couldn't really treat it in the same way. No. For example, The Jump, um, that's it's probably my first book that doesn't have a single joke in it. Yeah. It's like, even because, I mean, even the other ones have, they're not full of gags or anything, no. but there's a dark humour runs through them. But um, The Jump, it was just impossible to... Yeah. Think of any situation where you could do that kind of thing with that subject matter because it's about it's a book about suicide yeah. and about grief, um, and it's very hard to try and think of a situation where you would be able to joke about that, especially if you're in the throes of it and sure. sort of right in the in the thick of that stuff. Uh, but I mean, there's still warmth there, you know. There's there's um, 
uh, the, the well, the parents Ben and um, Ellie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. are uh, estranged in, in that they're trying to find their own ways of coping with this terrible event. But you still get a warmth that you know they care very much about each other. It's just that that's kind of taken a back seat because they're having to deal with this grief. Yeah, I mean, it's and it, I think um, interestingly, a lot of certainly with the early books, um, I was deliberately writing really unpleasant characters, central right. characters, uh-huh. in an effort to just try and push the reader as far as they'll go and try and take the reader with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and I wasn't really trying to do that um, very much with Gone Again, although some feedback from Gone Again, you know, usual amateur interviewers, I didn't like this guy at all, <laughs> you know, I didn't like character, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but with The Jump, I think Ellie is um, probably the first properly sympathetic central character that I've ever written. Although... She does end up doing some. She does some uh, <laughs> some very unsympathetic things. You would you would say perhaps, but I I mean I kind of I always felt like I was totally on her side when she's mm-hmm. doing them, and you can, and if I've done my job as an author, then then the reader understands why she's doing what she's doing, whether they agree with it or not is another yeah. matter. I'm not really concerned about whether they agree. That's interesting. If some people agree and some people don't, yeah, yeah. that's the kind of the moral grey area that's that makes it interesting for you as a writer to explore those kind of things. Um, what I get from that, because she does do extreme things, um, it's almost reminded me of, you know, you get these stories of people whose, uh, you know, loved ones are trapped under a car and they find the strength to lift the car yeah. off. You know, there's, she finds this strength almost because she's in this state of shock uh-huh. to do things that, you know, normally wouldn't even, she wouldn't even consider. Yeah. Um, and there is, I think what is... Uh, talk about a sympathetic character you are on her side all the way through um, if you think about the film um, oh the Danny Boyle film before Trainspotting which I now can't uh, remember Shallow Grave Shallow Grave yeah, yeah. where there's certain similarities <clears throat> but they are all kind of unlikable characters yeah, yeah. you know you manage to take something like that and, and, and as you say get someone on their side but to do that you've got to make other characters absolutely abhorrent <laughs> well, yeah, <coughs> well, that's true. But, um, yeah, although I, it's interesting that I'm, um, I absolutely agree about the sort of Danny Boyle thing. I love Shallow Grave. I, mm. I can't. I mean, I love Trainspotting, but Shallow Grave is a kind of really pure noir film. Yes, I think that's right. And it does that thing brilliantly of having unlikable people doing unlikable things, but you still kind of wanting them to get away with it, you know, yeah. or not, or just interest. You're interested, and that's the kind of films and TV and books um, that that always really resonates with me, that really interests me. Um, you know, that kind of really dark, noirish kind of stuff. You would say that people are doing kind of despicable things, but they kind of start out with the best intentions. You know, it's like, it's very Shakespearean, you know, yeah. or Macbeth and these kind of things as well. I mean, you know, um, uh, there's a brilliant Australian movie called The Square. Right. Where, I mean, it's, there's a lovely stream of like Australian really dark noir movies anyway. Uh, what was the one recently? Blue Ruin, which was another brilliant one. Absolutely brilliant movie. I think Australia's got this down pat where they have these central characters who end up doing awful things. Yeah. Really awful things. But you're still on their side because there's um they've done enough character development and there's enough backstory and there's enough of a reason for what they're doing for it to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's their surroundings or how they've been yeah. brought up or it's about survival. Um and there is this ambiguity in the novel as well about what's the truth and what isn't. Um, I don't know if that's me, me reading it. You know, you're, there's enough kind of doubt. I think uh, by the end to think is this action 
rational, and it's not. It's not really rational. Yeah. You know, there, there are times where it's a difficult book to talk about. By the way, yeah, 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 so I haven't really discussed <laughs> what happens. And it's been interesting because I've done a few book events already, and I've just been reading the first chapter just because yeah. after about chapter four, basically there's quite a lot of stuff being given away about yeah. the plot. You know, so um, yeah, it's hard to talk about. But well, basically, I mean, I, I can say that I Minelli mean, discovers another teenage boy on yeah. the bridge about to um, jump off. This is good because this shows me how far I can go when I write yeah. the review of it. And she um, and she talks him down. She basically talks him out yeah. and takes him home. And that's probably about as much as I want to say really yeah. about it. But yeah, so she gets involved with this other boy's family in a way. Um, and yeah, she does do things that are awful. But I deliberately wanted it to be not. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never liked, you know, good guys versus bad guys, you know, black hats and white hats, sure. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, even though there are awful things happening, I wanted to, I mean, I always, I always want to cast doubt on that. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where Ellie confronts someone else, another character, yeah. about, about what he's been doing. And I, and originally, I think the first draft I had that, I had it fairly straightforward. Yeah. But I wanted to make the guys reasons for what he might or might not have done or his explanations seem more plausible yeah um, just to annoy the reader more than that, you know. <laughs> but but anything that throws casts out on, yeah. the, on the sort of moral absolutism of what's happening sure. is great I think yeah and because Ellie herself has these questions you know she yeah. starts to think about it then I think as reader you kind of go God you know what is the truth here and you don't give any easy truths which I think is great and, uh, and then also the thing that what they end up doing um uh, which they do for reasons that they justify themselves. I mean, there are all sorts of doubts about it afterwards, Ellie and the rest of them, whether yeah. it's actually made things any better or worse. Sure. It might well have made things worse. And um, there's no there's no way of knowing, and I wouldn't end the book with it having come down on either side either. Um, it's just it's just about trying to live through the experiences that you have and not and still and still be around. It's still, yeah, uh-huh. it's like, find, finding a way through, which I think Gone Again had as well. Yeah, it did as well. Um, that had a, a similar kind of thing where, I mean, that I mean that's out long enough ago we can throw spoilers in yeah. as well. But that, I mean, the main character in that, the, the man in it who's looking after his son, I mean, there's bits in it where, I mean, he, he punches a, a mum in the playground in the school. That's right, forgot and about he, that. And he ends up, he, he assaults his own son as well, mm-hmm. point, you know, properly assaults him. Uh, and there's other stuff as well. And then... Um, and those scenes had to be in there because if they weren't, it was too, it's too easy. Yeah. You know, it's too easy for the for the reader to just sort of go along with what's going on. Um, I'm actually interested in Gone Again in making him a dubious character. I mean, he had he also has a sort of violent or aggressive background that you discover as the book goes along. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is guilty of what people think he's guilty yeah. of. But it, anything that, again, throws doubt on that uh, is always a good thing in my opinion. Something else I think which maybe separates the the two types of novels that we're talking about is thing the other ones seem to be about something from the past coming along and changing things and, and, and you know being the, the catalyst for whatever's happening. Whereas Gone Again and the Jump, it's about how to move forward, how to kind of continue and that's almost scarier than anything else, considering it, what's happened. Well it's been interesting, yeah, I mean because the jump's all about um suicide I, I didn't really I've never really understood why suicide is such a taboo subject mm-hmm. it is but I mean I've only done a few like literally a handful of book events um, and it's and I didn't even think about it's actually going to be quite hard to talk about and you can see the fear in the audience's eyes actually yeah. they don't like they don't like confronting this stuff and that's because it could be any of us it could happen mm-hmm. to any of us everyone's got you know everyone's got friends and family who have suffered from mental illness and mental health issues 
and everyone knows someone you yeah. know knows a suicide story about someone and yeah. yet you know it never really gets it never gets reported for obvious journalistic reasons as well about copycats and stuff but also people don't really confront the sort of main issues about how people do it and why they do it and yeah. all that sort of stuff um, and sometimes there are no answers that's so, the thing well that's, well that's exactly what I was trying to do with the jump because um, I mean I've been interested in suicide for a long time um, f- for whatever reason yeah. you know get the psychiatrist coach out yeah. but but um, but it's I I mean one of the things about suicide in the real world is that you don't get closure or resolution mm-hmm. very often you don't have that you just yeah. have continued loss and nothing else that's right um, now I sort of write crime books you would call them and in the sort of the kind of tropes of crime fiction, you have to throw the reader a bone a little bit and give them a kind of redemption or a closure or something. Even if it's, it doesn't all have to be tied up in a bow, but sure. you have to do something, you know, to have a certain amount of resolution. So I kind of set myself the seemingly impossible task of squaring that circle, writing a proper crime novel, but also about suicide. Because yeah. I'm always very aware that if you read, I, I mean, I'm not going to condemn other um, crime books, but if you come across a, a crime novel and there's a suicide in the first few pages, you know, nine times out of ten, it's not really a suicide. Yeah. It's a serial killer or it's da-da-da or something. Yeah. And it's been made to look like a suicide. But I watched to write one that was actually about a suicide that was just a suicide that wasn't because of any dark yeah. secrets from the past. It was just, there was no answer. Yeah. There wasn't any, you, didn't, you don't get an answer. And that brings us to the kind of central theme is how people cope. The methods that they use to try and cope um, Ellie returns every day to where um, uh, Logan. Logan, yeah, that's right. Where where, where Logan uh, jumped, and we can see that in the name of the book. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. And um, she's trying to find some kind of answer, but doesn't know what it is she's looking for. And then the situation that unfolds, it's almost like she sees that she has a kind of second chance. Yeah. A redemption, uh, a chance at redemption. Whereas Ben becomes embroiled in conspiracy theories about, again, looking for some kind of answer. It struck me that it's almost like this was the way, in the past, people would have clung to religion. They would have yeah. said, you know, I have faith and that explains everything is yeah. God's will and all that kind of stuff. But increasingly, you know, people don't have that anymore. So, did you think that these are the ways that new, you know, modern ways that people look to try and deal with the worst things that get? Well, happen? one of the, well, yeah, one of the, one of the things that absolutely replaces religion in the modern world is conspiracy theories. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of inhabits the same place in people's psyche, doesn't it? You know, an explanation for everything. You know, it's not just that I've had really bad luck. It's that you know, some Illuminati are out to get me, and it's all yeah. you know they're keeping the oppressed, you know, keeping the oppressed down. All that sort of stuff. And I love. I mean, I I don't really believe many conspiracy theories, but I love that whole idea. Mm-hmm. And it's. And it's it's whatever kind of compul I mean it is compulsive behaviour. Of course. And that's Ben, he's sort of and you see this about um suicide all the time if you're on suicide like chat rooms online mm-hmm. and stuff. People I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a rabbit hole you go down and people sure. are talking about, you know, because there's you get hot spots like there's one place called Bridge End in Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um where there were you know, there was a lot of people thinking it was phone masts mm-hmm. or, you know, but they all if they all got like um BCGs at the same time yeah, sure. had a dodgy batch or something that gave them all, you know, <coughs> mental health problems. Or like, you know, and people want a reason. They, they want, want a reason, that's it. it. And it's the same with Ellie, I mean she's kinda she's more pragmatic in one way in that she realises there isn't a reason she's mm-hmm. around that route but she's still she's compulsively getting tattoos she's, she throws herself into physical um, uh, stressful and like exercise and endeavours like swimming and mm-hmm. running and walking as much as she can because it's the only way that she can 
<clears throat> seem to cope through the actual physical exertion of our body. The, sorry. No, no, you go. I was going to say the tattoos are interesting because it almost comes across as a kind of acceptable form of self-harm. You know, she's that um, she's enjoying the pain. She's deliberately kind of picking at it to kind of give her some sensation. Yeah. To break through, I mean, it's often something that occurs when people are depressed, that they'll do things that at least will give them something, some kind of feeling, even if it's actually damaging. Well, I mean, any kind of compulsive behaviour like that, it's a matter of working out what is the least damaging to yourself, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, people can replace, you know, sort of mental health issues with... I mean, if someone has a serious alcoholism problem and then they start to, you know, run ultra marathons mm -hmm. instead, then that's presumably going to be better, you, yep. know, you know, presumably going to be better or whatever it is, you know, any of these things. And it's a matter of you have to judge what, you know, you, you know it's like replacing heroin with methadone, you know, but then getting hooked on methadone and able to get off that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a similar kind of thing. You have to try and, I mean, people, I mean, people, some people um, display more compulsive behaviour are more prone to compulsive behaviour than others yeah. but I mean, especially in these kind of situations where we're talking about extreme trauma and grief and guilt as well that's obviously left behind by um, uh, the loved ones of suicide victims you know could I have done anything different you know what did I, what did I do um, then, then I mean that, these are extreme situations there's a huge amount of um, internal mental pressure mm -hmm. so yeah whatever whatever you can do I mean yeah that in a to self-harm yourself without self-harming yourself. You know, yeah. you know, yes. Without just getting the razor blades out and, yeah. and going for it, you know. Um, something else which is central to the book is the use and growth of social media, um, which I found really interesting, the way that Ellie constantly checks uh, Logan's Facebook yeah. to see if anyone has posted anything. She posts things herself saying <clears> that she misses them and this, which I've always found a slightly strange thing that people would put something so personal on such a you know kind of public forum it's a bit like sitting beside someone on the bus that you barely yeah. know and saying by the way this has happened to me um but it is an increasing phenomenon well i, I mean I've, I've got several facebook friends who are dead mm -hmm. you know i think most people probably yeah, yeah. people who are dead who are their, their pages are still up there yeah um and i think that it's just a very common way and it's i mean it's really very common especially with young folk like teenagers you sure? or whatever if it's a teenage suicide victim um, or even a, a, just any kind of death, you know, an accidental death, car accident, something like that. That the it's the page lives on like a kind of memorial. Yeah. Um, and you know, who are we to say that you know a, a mother posting on their child's their dead child's site isn't? I mean, that's I mean, that's who are we to say that's weird or that's a kind no, of, that's if that's that's a coping mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about like anything absolutely. else, and if it's there and it gives you some kind of solace in that situation then I, I think oh, I mean great I mean it's that's you might as well use these facilities sure. you have and these and that's going to happen more and more you know it's um, uh, I think as our, we, our lives completely become online things um, that when we're gone that we're kind of going to live on in, yeah. that, in that online realm but I think it also shows how it, things mean the people that really care the family want that memory to continue but when it's like that on 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 twitter or on facebook or on whatever you'll see that less and less people are remembering and yeah. you're the only one there and i think that's quite interesting as well yeah it's i mean it's a matter of yeah i mean that's a, that's a tough one you know it's hard to know um and if you were in the situation where it was a it was someone you knew when you, would you leave the page up forever would you take it down what would you yeah what would you do in those circumstances um, and there's no like like the book like in the book there's no easy answer <laughs> no. to that one you know 
But it's because not many people I think have written about that. Unless certainly not not many people I've read have written about that and how um, it can offer solace, but then perhaps ultimately it can be a reminder that you know the person that you will never forget is is not perhaps yeah. being remembered in the same way. Whether it is just a constant reminder, or whether you, it's like um, you know whether you can ever. I mean, you can't really ever possibly move on from this kind of thing. You know, especially if I think. I mean, it's. It's incredibly traumatic for anyone, but I think for parents who lose children, it must be probably the worst. Yeah. Um, just from the sort of depth of emotion going on there, and so I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know what you do. I don't know. What the, I don't know what the answer is. But I mean, it is. Um, like I, I sort of said earlier on, it's not um, a matter of getting over it. It's a matter of somehow just you know surviving. Sure. Uh, in that, and whether it's and it's always going to be a trade off between not wanting them forgotten, but not wanting to be constantly reminded of their absence. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. And I think it's the absence that Ellie feels so keenly. You know, like when she tidies Logan's room and then she realises it doesn't need to tidy it anymore and, you know, and she tries to almost literally fill this absence with yeah. a kind of surrogate family in a way. And she is, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely. It's kind of like a second chance. It's like, like you know, she's t- she's basically trying to adopt this other family as you know the children of this family as hers. You know, yeah. to try and replace um, her own son. And also, there's that. I mean, that, you're right about the, the physicality of it. I mean, it, it sort of ties in with Ellie's physical running and you know swimming and all that stuff, and and the room which she hasn't changed, um, but also just the physical presence of the place where he did it, the bridge, which, yeah. is, which, which they can see out the window of like his bedroom, which yes. is like basically they step out on their house. And it's right there. And it's this huge, you know, absolute massive, you know, like absolute domineering structure on the horizon. And just to have that always there is, again, that thing of it's just a constant reminder or does it help you to not forget the person? You know, so yeah. it's, it's tricky. Absolutely. Um, I know I've spoken to you before. I know that you do a lot of research before you, you start your books. Did you research suicide? or? Yes, a lot. I mean, I read books about it and spent quite a lot of time um, online and uh, various sort of chat rooms and stuff mm-hmm. like that and just kind of support groups um, and I have some personal experience about it as well which mm-hmm. I probably won't talk about yeah it. sure but um, so I could I mean it's it wasn't as anything as direct and traumatic as the case of Ellie but it's, it certainly um, brings home to you how you could be in that mindset in those circumstances so yeah it's um, in that respect it's actually quite I mean the, the, the internet's a wonderful thing and you can you can do that kind of research and actually chat to people online yeah. uh, or just sort of, you know, um, look at conversations that are happening online. There are people are posting, so they're, they're happy enough to have them out there, but not feel like you're massively intruding. Like, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't sit and speak to anyone face-to-face who was, who was in Ellie's situation, Yeah, which you would worry that it would be too imposing or seem to be taking advantage of yeah. their situation or just, or just that exploitative or that kind of constant reminder. And I think if you can do research into this kind of thing as sort of surreptitiously or as sensitively as possible and kind of without being in folks' face about it, mm-hmm. that's, that's all the better. Because you have to, well, I mean, there's all sorts of issues about suicide. Like I mentioned very briefly earlier that because um, newspapers don't report about um, suicides yeah. uh, unless it disrupts traffic. Right. Because uh, then it becomes a news story. But as, And that's because, I mean, there are regulations in place for journalism um, so they don't, because you do very often get copycat um, killings. Okay. Yeah, copycat suicides. Um, 
Uh, so, I mean, it's that idea of like someone reading in the paper about somebody else killing themselves and thinking, oh, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. I mean, it literally is that simple sometimes. Yeah. But also that complex, which is weird. That, yeah, that that's an interesting phenomenon um, that is difficult to get your head around. You always think there must be something more. But I think but part of it is just seeing, part of it is seeing that, is, that it is an option. Yeah. That it kind of, it's like, it kind of I, open, guess. I guess it would open your eyes if you were feeling, if you were having thoughts about that. And you saw that someone else had done it. It kind of it's like a green light to say that sure. it is it is a doable thing. It is an option, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of terrifying. And even us talking about this now and you broadcasting yeah. this on the internet is kind of flirting with these kind of ideas. Yeah, and I've written a few pieces about sort of um, the inspiration behind the jump. And I have I've kind of tried to be very careful um, not to ever sensationalise it or glamorise is the wrong word. But you know, yeah. there's a, there's an I mean, there would be certainly with teenage suicide. There might be an element where people, um, would you know, think it was cool or whatever, yeah. um, which is kind of terrifying. But um, or an easy option or something like that. Um, so you have to be, you have to tread very carefully on sure. this subject matter. And I guess that was a consideration before you started to write the book at all. Yeah. Because you know, if what you're saying is if you, someone reads it, um, you know, you just don't know. Yeah, exactly. But I I address all of these things that we are talking about now in the book. I think. About, yeah, I, think yeah. I mean about. And the reasons why or why not people might do it in terms of peer pressure or copycats or you know all these other things, I try and sort of debunk them. And hopefully, I mean, all you can try and do is write about it as honestly and as sensitively as as you can, yeah. and hope that um, people, readers, are going to get that you know from it. And it seems to be so far. I mean, the, the kind of reception seems to be pretty good about it. That, is, that it has. You know, I'm not, I'm not jumping in there in my big size twelve boots sure. and just, <laughs> just stamping all over the subject matter. But I think that's obviously a result of the research that you do, because I would say all your books, you know, deal with difficult um, subjects to lesser, greater degrees, and the research isn't necessarily rammed down your throat. In fact, it's not rammed down your throat, yeah. but it's obviously there, which gives a kind of authority for what's written. I mean, I've read many books where the the writer is determined to show you what they've researched. Yeah, you know, it kind of <laughs> drives me nuts. That. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I do a lot of research and I write a lot of notes before I start writing yeah. the book. But it's not. I'm not sitting down taking proper notes. It's kind of like a stream of consciousness thing, and I, and I very rarely look back at the notes when mm-hmm. I start writing the book. It's just kind of the way to do it. I think is is to try and write the story as cleanly and simply as possible with the stuff you know in your head in your head. And it does sort of, it infuses the narrative rather than, you know, yeah. letting it stew all the way through. Like that thing where you, you know, read 12 pages about what Montevideo was like in 1840 before you even get to anyone saying hello. You yeah. know, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm very wary of that as well. And I, I, can't, I can't stand that, you know, too much. Like, oh, I've done so much research. I'm determined and, to show you. Yeah. <laughs> and at the start, I mean, there's like some interesting statistics about suicide. Um, which Ellie talks about yeah. quite early on in the book, but that's because she has become a self-educated expert on it since Logan which killed himself. Which it's absolutely uh, understandable. Which, yeah, which is absolutely kind of, and so that's kind of relevant to that. But yeah, I'm very aware about that thing as mm-hmm. well. People club you over the head with that stuff. Um, so you may talk a little bit about the, the reception of the book, um, and it has been, as far as I can see, very you know well received in the readings. I mean, you see, you read the first chapter. What's been the you know, reaction of audiences so far? Because um, it's just so it's a difficult it's a difficult subject to talk about yeah. for all sorts of reasons. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, as you say, everyone has, has got some experience of it to a greater or lesser degree. And then you think, I don't want to talk to that, you? you know, with, with, with yeah. people that I'm not so, you know, most books, they would have something saying, well, why did you write that? And why did you write this? And I actually think, well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I've been reading that first chapter, which kind of is an introduction to Ellie and her mindset. And yeah, it's generally met with a sort of stunned silence, <laughs> which I kind of take as a good thing. People are obviously getting sucked into the story and getting sucked into Ellie's life and her story. Um, and if they and if it scares them a little bit, then good, you know, it should. It's a scary subject. Yeah. So um and I'm you know, I'm quite happy to talk about it, but I'm very wary of just rambling on and I mean you never get questions at events anyway, people are always too shy. Sure, of course, yeah. Um but I, yeah, I did this um I sort of launched the book a couple of weeks ago with Helen Fitzgerald, um a friend who kind of chaired the event or asked me questions about it. And that's fine with me and Helen because we're both as dark as each other. So we'll, <laughs> we'll just having read Helen's work, I can yeah. say that's true. We'll just plough on regardless, <laughs> and then people gasp in the audience. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, but then you read that opening chapter, and it's very—I um, don't know what the—I don't know how you would describe the mood of it, but it's—it's it's not shocking, but there's something kind of deeply unsettling about it. I think it's so, for our reader. It's very unexpected to get that in the first few pages. I think. Yeah, maybe it doesn't sort of it doesn't ease you in generally no. or anything. No. <laughs> Good, <laughs> but that's often the way with your books. You kind of throw the reader in right at the beginning and say, "Right, you're not letting you go till this, uh, this is finished at the end." Well, that's that's the idea, Ali, isn't it? That's what you want to do. You know, drag them along. And I think that's very interesting. That that's the uniting thing. You know, we're talking maybe about differences between some books and other books, but you've got this ability which uh, to to keep the pace of, of things, events going. Well, I write, I mean, I write very short books. That makes it easy to a certain extent. I'm kind of the envy of a lot of other crime writers who basically write books twice as long as me. And I say, oh, that's, 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 what's that? It's two books to me. But, um, and also I write in, I write in really short bursts. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't write any longer than two or three hours at a time right. because I find the energy flags in the prose after that. And um, and it's just about really cutting it down to the absolute, you know. I was going to ask you about the editing. I mean, do you do... Do you, when you say it's short books, is it always short? I mean, or do you begin with quite a... Um, well, yeah, they're mostly always short now. They don't, there's not really anything... I mean, actually, the jump's one of the longer ones. It's like 70,000 or something. Mm. But I've just finished I've just finished doing the second draft of my next novel. The first draft was 72,000 words, and this one's 57. So I've just cut out whatever that is. 15,000. So yeah. about 20% of it's just gone right. in that second draft. Now, I might add up some more stuff in... Mm-hmm. Like, but it's always peering back and peering back. I, I love, actually, I love it. I love self-editing. I know a lot of writers, fellow writers, kind of throw up their arms in horror when I say that. But um, I, I love. I mean, I find the first draft the hardest because it's an empty page sure. to come up with stuff. Yeah. And I think once you've got something, you know, it's just. I mean, it's awful. It's dross. You mm-hmm. know, first drafts are designed to be garbage. That's no point of them. Um, uh, but you've got something to work with, and yeah. you can just. I mean, like, I mean, I could show you that first draft that I've just marked up on pen. It's like every page is just covered. And like arrows round and stuff mm-hmm. and told out and just whole pages scribbled off and all that sort of stuff. Um, and all, all that is doing is just trying to sort of boil down to the essence of the story. Um, I quite often, you know, cause, um, uh, a couple of my books have kind of have taken off a bit on, on um, in Kindle yeah. form. So you get loads of Amazon reviews. Sure. Uh, and you, you get, I mean, the vast majority of them are, you know, incredibly generous and very nice. But I mean, I love looking at the ones that, that hate it, and they hate. It. Do you focus on the ones? Well, that well, hate yeah, it? I think all writers do that. But you, but they they hate it for the reason, the same reason that other people love it. Like, right. like there's not enough description or detail or 
there was like the plot was too linear. There wasn't enough red herrings and stuff. Mm. And it's like, well, that's that's a different book. That's yeah, not, that's yeah. Not, that's you not, need a different writer. Yeah, you need a different writer for that. That's not me. That's not what I do. You know, um, or there's too many f words or whatever. You know, all that stuff. I get that all the time. But it's like, well, you know, you have to read someone else. I'm afraid. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, I, and I, I don't mind if people dislike a book for the same reasons that I like it. <laughs> that's yes, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fine. Um, you talk a little bit about your next book. Can you tell us anything about that, or is that still top secret? Um, yeah, it's uh, set in Orkney, right? And it starts with a plane crash, <laughs> and again, it gets much worse, <laughs> a lot worse. It's kind of uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit back to it's it's less like the jump and gone again, and more like maybe the deadbeat and right. hit and run. Um, it's a kind of in my mind, it's like a femme fatale story. Okay. But it, it might not be like it that. Not. It might not be like that on the page. <laughs> but I, I love that. I love the, uh, I mean, uh, I've written, the last two books I've written have been um, female narrators. Yeah, um, right, yeah, With kind of very troubled, I want mental health and, you know, mm-hmm. grief and stuff like that, issues. And so this is back to a young male narrator, but he gets sort of involved in a mysterious woman figure who leads him down a dark path shall we say excellent uh, and it's it's basically all set it's set all over Orkney it never leaves Orkney um, uh, and but we'll see I'm still in this I mean it's only the second draft so it's yeah. still in the semi-dross stage <laughs> and we'll see what happens it definitely needs I need to inject some pizzazz into it somehow but on average how many drafts do you can I get through before you well I would be about four before my agent has a look right. and then I would make some changes after that and then another one or two after that, seven, seven by the time my editor sees okay. it maybe, and then at least another one or two after that before it's, um, because my, I'll do my editor's changes or or, or not, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> uh, and then maybe I'll go through it again, I'll always yeah. go through it again all yeah. the time, um, just because that'll have thrown up other ideas or other stuff. Sure. So, by the time it gets to print, you know, it could be nine, yeah. eight or nine, but like I say, they're short, so. <laughs> it's easy I'm getting shot if I was writing the Goldfinch or, yeah. or the Luminaries it might be different um, going back to Deadbeat because I haven't, haven't spoken to you on Scots Way since you did that book that was the structure of that interested me because it was based around five five gigs from the past four gigs from the past and that was was that how you started to the idea behind it and were the gigs that you were at uh, well they weren't they weren't all real gigs I kind of am- oh, I kind- not? well. I amalgamated one or two, but right. the the Nirvana one at the Southern was real, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of wings at the venue was real, and then I switched one, I think, because I wanted one through in Glasgow just to see, just to make it a bit more different. Um, and Teenage Fan Club was somewhere else; it wasn't in the whatever the venue was. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, no, but that was because um, the way that story worked out. Is, I mean, it's mostly in the present day, but there are these four sort of quite lengthy flashback scenes. And in fact, they were much lengthier in this of earlier drafts. Right. Because I was doing that thing of showing off how much I knew about 1990s grunge <laughs> um, and describing every poster on the wall in the Southern and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, I need to cut all that. Um, but um, they were, I mean, the reason for what's happening in the present day, without giving it away, mm-hmm. it, like lies in what happened. You sure, know, in the yeah. This generation stuff, which is this, so that's the, so it wasn't just backstory, it was backstory that was relevant to the current plot. And um, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew I had these at least four um, sort of crucial scenes and I didn't want to just bury them. I could have just, I could have just buried them in a kind of flashback or a, or a you know, thing yeah. I thought, but I thought, yeah. I thought I'll extricate them and make them, I said, because it's a different point of view as well from the main character, Martha. Um, and I wanted to just kind of juxtapose that 
the two of them against each other because it's two different female narrators who are both the same age in the in the time when they're um, when they're narrating. Right. But there's twenty three years, or whatever, or twenty two years between them, mm-hmm. um, and two sort of kind of juxtaposed to different ways they view the world. Yeah. Because of that, I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like. I mean, to people of my age, it doesn't seem like history, but it is ancient. Yeah, it does. Well, it, but it was Nirvana playing in the Southern in 1991 is ancient history, unfortunately. That's that was the most shocking thing in the book to me. Going, <laughs> what? But um, again, the family is kind of central to that book. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, you can go back to the very early ones, that seems to be something which you. The, the, the real drama is to be found within families. Well, that, I, I think you know? so. I think it's. I mean, it. It's. I mean, it's essentially more dramatic to have two brothers fighting than two friends fighting, isn't it? Yeah. Or yeah. to have a mother and a daughter, you know, with all the years of all built-up stuff between them, you know, coming into conflict than just two people in the, you know, in this in the street or whatever. I think. I think I, I always kind of look to try and. Um, Exploit that conflict intention as much as as much as possible. I mean, it's it's absolutely the sort of the deep root of you know where a lot of our a lot of our conflict comes from. And in fact, I mean, I, I've done it before. Where I, th- I mean, I think maybe in early not maybe not in early drafts, but when I was planning hit and run, mm-hmm. I didn't have them as being brothers, the two guys. Right. And then I thought, well, it'd be much more interesting than brothers. And again, in Gone Again. I think the mother-in-law was wasn't related originally because right. there was a whole different thing where she was just a like she worked for like a counselling company and kind of busybody or yeah, something. Yeah, kind of a busybody. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be more interesting if this is the missing woman's mum? I think that's up, and that's a great relationship yeah, in that book, which yeah. is who is also going through a different kind of loss and grief or whatever. She's kind of you know yeah kind of same emotion but from a different point of view, and um, and it's just it's just a it's just a way of tightening the noose. Around the whole thing, you know, yeah. making it tighter, making it um, more claustrophobic, and you know, you, you know that whole the classic, you know, cliche of you can um, choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. So, you can... and I think that's probably what makes them so uh, relatable is that even when it's the worst that you can imagine, the thing is you can't imagine because you know you can't imagine how you would feel in that position because of how deeply you care of your own family or how wildly you fought with your own family or whatever the relationship yeah, is, that, that's all there. It's the deepest kind of bonds and therefore it leads to the most extreme activity and the most extreme um, reactions to that bond, I think. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, if someone is threatening your child then you'll do anything to protect them or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well... We're nearly done. <laughs> Please don't know. But I was at. I was at. I'm, something... I'm going to pick up the kids from school. Speaking of <laughs> exactly. domestic, domestic noir. Okay. I, well, this will no, no. be very quick. This Sorry, very no, we got, we got, we got time. Um, just a question. Somebody I was at uh, a wedding recently, and someone came up to me and said, "Oh, you're involved in kind of Scottish writing and stuff like that." I said, "Yeah." I said, "How, how do I become a writer?" And I said, "I have no idea, but I know someone I can ask." And so there I go. I ask you that question, Doug. How, in terms of being a writer, how would oh. you go ahead? If you were doing it now, would you say I'm not going to? Uh, no, absolutely not. I would, uh, yeah, I thought I'd recommend that everyone become writers <laughs> and then there's lots more competition for me. Um, no, it's, um, I mean, it's the, all the advice you give about this sort of thing is it's kind of really banal, um, mm-hmm. but it's true at the same time. Uh, so, you know, you, I mean, you just, people quite like the idea of writing, but they don't, you know, they don't really know much about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's like, well, how much do you read? I mean, people sometimes people who don't even read books very much yeah. want to be right. It's like, well, you're not even you're not even entering at the argument there, are you? You're yeah. not even engaging in this. You know, I want to be a chef, yeah. but I don't like food. Yeah, it's like crazy. <laughs> but um, you know, you have to read. You have to read all the time. You have to just read everything. You know, mm. good and bad. It all it all feeds in to what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to write all the time. You know, it's like a muscle. You have to practice doing it. And you have to try and analyse your own work and analyse the work of kind of the books that you love and see what makes them good or the crap books you read and work out why you think they're crap you know in your opinion what makes them bad books um, and just uh, you know and you know have something to say you know have something original to write about yeah that isn't just I mean it's it's your worldview it's your point of view I mean I, I didn't write I kind of I, I didn't have a book set in Edinburgh for until about book four I think mm-hmm. um, had, Edinburgh was in some of them little bits but not really Part of that was I kind of shied away from Edinburgh because it's such a well-known literary yeah, sort sure. of landscape, you know. But then I suddenly realised, well, you know, I've lived in Edinburgh for 20 years. My Edinburgh's different from Ian Rankin's or Muriel Sparks or Alexander McCall Smith's. You know, it's just as valid. It's a very different Edinburgh, but it's just as valid as theirs. So, you know, and you could write about that, you know. And, yeah. and one of the reasons I got into writing in the first place was because I didn't see the world I knew all around me represented in the books that I was reading, mm-hmm. you know. As a kid, you know, I wasn't really seeing that. Because I grew up in a I grew up in a rural small town on the east coast, and and um, I didn't I didn't see that that society. I didn't see my friends and my family in, in the books that you know we were getting at school or whatever. And sure. um, so that was one of the kind of driving forces for me. I felt like I had something to say. I probably didn't at that point, you know, because I was a teenager. But um, but it's, um, I just keep plugging away, you know, and just keep practicing, keep writing, and if once you've got something you think is worth anyone else reading you know try and send it to people yeah. it's, and it's a kind of it's a war of attrition you know uh, half the time you, and you can just get lucky or you can get unlucky or you know but I think if you're if you're good enough and you're writing stuff that is original then you will eventually you know get noticed yeah and then I mean I, I'm talking there about sort of getting published in whatever form sure. you know and you can obviously self-publish now that's you know that's a whole that's a whole other avenue um, and that and that's great for a lot of people. A lot of people are not interested in the conventional publishing system and want yeah. to just do it themselves or want to just write their life story for their friends and family. Sure. Or, you know, that, and that's another perfectly valid reason for writing. You know, there is as many ways of writing as there are writers. Um, but it's and if you want to have a career as a writer, that's a whole different other thing. I think you just have to. Uh, I mean, getting published is, is the first step. Yeah, and you have to because a lot of people, a lot of people who write a first novel. Um, you know, the first thing that any agent or editor will ever ask you is what you're working on now, what you're working yeah. on next, what you're working on next. Is you, so you should always be working on something next. Yeah. You should always have something else. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're not going to do it as a writer, you know. I think that's maybe what a lot of people don't realise is the work ethic. It's one of the reasons I asked you about how many drafts before, you know, you eventually goes to the publisher, um, is that every writer we've ever spoken to grafts. It's a graft. Yeah, as any other job is a graft, and you do it because you love it, and, and you do it without a readership really in mind yeah. and anything like that. You do it because you kind of you don't want to say too much. Have to do it. It's what you yeah. want it to do. I mean, of course, everyone like you know everyone, every writer wants everyone in the world to love their work. Right? Yeah. And we're not we're not that. We're not just sitting in a garret doing it for our own. You know, so you look at Amazon reviews. Yeah, in the but, afternoon. <laughs> but it's like, but you know, you're not. We're not daft enough to think everyone's going to love what you do. So yeah. uh, the same token, but yeah, you are, and you're always. You're always learning on the job. You're always, um, hopefully, improving, and you're always learning new tricks. And you know, and it's and craft. The thing about craft is 
people, if you say the word craft, people think of, I don't know, you know, a kind of um, literary style that is kind of showy off or whatever. But that, but like, and Stephen King starts off his brilliant book on writing yeah. uh, with, like, no one ever asked me about the craft. And, like, his craft is just as as crafty yeah. as, as Will Selfs or Donatar or whoever, you know, Absolutely. whatever. Um, and it's about what you leave out and how, just about, you know, storytelling mm-hmm. and the way, I mean, I mean, I read... When I'm talking about those drafts to go back at some point round about draft four I read it all out loud to myself the whole bloody book wow um, because that's a brilliant way of working out if you've written a clunky sentence so if the, yeah if, if it you, dies on you and your if tongue the rhythm, if you like, if yeah. the rhythm of it doesn't if you stumble over words or you know or it sounds stupid that's because you've written something crap mm-hmm. you know and, and that's just you know, one of the things that I learned to do about book two or something like that you know just read it out loud and you'll just hear you'll hear it in your yeah. mouth it's great Okay, well, I think that's the perfect place to wrap yeah. it up. Uh, it's a pleasure as always, Doug. Thanks very much. Cheers, Ali. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Cheers.